All right, so let's look at Leviticus chapter 23. We'll look at the first verse here in 34, and then we'll just break, break down from that. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And so here we are five days past the Day of Atonement. Uh, we're leaving off of that uh, awesome time. That was a day of awe to them uh, when, the, when the blood was shed and the confession of sins. But now, five days later which is a number of grace, by the way, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is a completely different mentality here in this feast. It's not like the Day of Atonement. It's actually a very rejoicing type of time here. And so that, that's good. Uh, number one, the feast would last seven days. Now, I just read that, and so I don't really have to talk about that much, but seven is always the perfect uh, number of completion. And uh, we know that whatever God was working out here, it was, it was perfectly done. And uh, the feast uh, is going to finish the age, is what it's going to do. Uh, that Feast of the Tabernacle, that's going to be the final feast that we're going to look at. I'll look at that later. Get ahead of myself. Number two, the first day was an holy convocation where no servile work was to be done. And it says in verse 35, on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no, no servile work therein. And, of course, uh, the reason why the Lord made these holy days where you do no work within it is to get the focus off of yourself and completely on Him. Uh, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. And so He's the one that did all the work for us. This is all about Him. Uh, The Israelites are just going along for the ride. We're just going along for the ride. The Lord did all the work for us. He's the one that shed His blood. He's the one that uh, was crucified, was buried. He's the one that's going to return again. That's all his doing. We're not making it happen. We're just choosing whether we want to be involved in that blessing. Amen? And so that's, that's what this represents here. Number three, the feasts were always accompanied by burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now this is nothing new, but it says in verse 36 and 37, Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Unto the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. And so some of these things I can probably explain to you. The meat offering, like I said, it's not talking about beef. We had a good steak last night, by the way. My brother came and he treated us. My, my wife's birthday took us out to, uh, ever been to Cattle Baron? Oh, Lord, you've got to go to that. <laughs> I mean, keg has nothing on them, really. No, it is very good, so you got to go there. All right, anyways, i got to get back in the <laughs> game here. <laughs> I was like, beef? <laughs> it was good. Uh, but, you know, the meat offering isn't, isn't talking about beef and pork and so forth. It's talk, actually talking about grains. It's talking about flour. It's talking about uh, the, the meat that they would make from bread and so forth, and that would be meat to them. And, of course, meat in that day, it meant slightly different things. Even Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of the Father. And so, uh, so the word meat isn't referring always to uh, flesh, amen, and eating flesh, all right? And, and basically, the meat offering and the flour and so forth was just a picture of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the white flour and so forth, and fine and, and so forth. It's always a picture of Christ and his perfect life. And um, the burnt offering, of course, is just a picture of the complete sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary, uh, even in the Passover 
that uh, sacrifice was to be completely consumed. And whatever was left over, they would burn it completely. There would be nothing left over. And that's what is representative of the burnt offering. And the sin offerings, of course, were about the confession of sin and on and on. Number four, it was pointing toward a future day in the promised land. And we've got to remember this. They were in the wilderness at this point when they got these laws. So they really aren't going to be practicing this until they get to the promised land. And uh, you've got to remember this, that when you, uh, as a Christian, there's many things that the Lord tells us that aren't coming into play yet. You know, we're preparing for these things. Amen. And, uh, and many times, you know, people get maybe a little discouraged that they're not involved in everything. But you've you got to realize that, you know, there, there are steps in the Christian life that you need to take. And I think, uh, you know, like we're looking at lessons in the wilderness is really just talking about preparing yourself for God's will for your life. Now, it is God's will for you to be in that wilderness experience, to be in that, not the second one, but the first one. Uh, he chose for them to go the other way instead of taking the highway of the Philistines. Because that would have taken them right there within a couple of months. They would have gone straight to the promised land. But the Lord knew that when they got there, they wouldn't be ready for the war. They weren't, they weren't prepared. They needed some lessons. And that's why the Lord brought them by the way of the Red Sea. So starting from the Red Sea and on, the Lord says, okay, now it's time for me to give you my lessons. And so for every Christian, there is a, there is a wilderness lesson time. And you got to be careful. I've met many Christians, you know, they got good intentions. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to go into the promised land when they still haven't learned the lessons yet. <laughs> you know, you, you got to be prepared for it. Because when you start hitting uh, some of the battles of actually serving God, I mean, as a preacher, I mean, that's why it says don't let a novice go into ministry, right? There's got to be a preparation time. Uh, if you just go straight into the ministry, you know, oh, I'm called, I'm going to go preach, you're going to blow it. Yeah. You're going to blow it. I mean, uh, and, and today more than ever, I think, it's, it's become harder and harder and harder. And, you know, the time of the 17-year-olds, you know, you know, getting out there and pastoring a church are basically over. You know, you hear of that in the past, and people have done that in the States, and the States has always been a little different anyways, but, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that doesn't happen very often these days. You know, I'm much more about people being mature in the faith, and even not even just in the faith, but mature in their personal lives. Yeah. You know, because there's so much to learn, and we're, we're, we're in such a self-gratuitous society. And our kids, they're not learning the way that they used to teach them way back, where they have that school of hard knocks and that school of, uh, you know, uh, of just practicality. Now everybody wants everything their parents had within six months of their marriage. You know, I want to have exactly what we... No, you got to start with a little shack and you got to build up to that, you know. And people don't want that these days. They want to go right to the big thing. And the, the problem is the world is making it possible for them to jump in and then fail. You know, and so we, we have to be wiser in that. And that's, that when you start looking at passages like this, you have to remember that sometimes the Lord tells you things and he wants you to learn them, but you're not necessarily going to apply them just yet. And this is a future thing. They don't have any, any first fruits to bring yet. You know, they don't have these things in the wilderness. They just got manna. And they weren't just going to, you know, substitute manna for all these things God's talking about here. And so... So he's given them these instructions for a future time, for the will of God for their life. And so I just say, folks, when you're, when you're growing, don't push it. Don't push it, you know. 
you know, I've always been a careful individual. I talked to a young man this last Sunday, and I said, you're a, you're a careful person, aren't you? And I says, but your brother, he's just like headlong into it. And he knocks his head, and then, oh, I shouldn't have done that, you know. But one of the boys was just, oh, he thinks through everything. And I think, you know, I, I'm for this faith thing where you just kind of do what you need to do. But I think we're really lacking that contemplative, uh, you know, carefulness that we ought to have as we move forward for God. Because I'll tell you something, it's not just about you. When you start taking on ministry or service, there's other parties involved. (laughs) You know what those parties are, right? I mean, one of the main ones is your adversary. See, until you step forward and take that front position, he's probably not going to give you a lot of attention. And so do you know spiritual warfare? Do you know how how to fight on that level? Well, if you don't, be careful about just jumping into a ministry, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because uh, you will face it, and we have faced it over and over. Every ministry we've been in, uh, you know, our first one especially, severe spiritual warfare there. And, you know, I wasn't prepared for some of that, but we had some training on it, so it wasn't like a total surprise. And so, so just be careful as you go forward for God. Take the lessons as they come. You know, learn to be faithful. You know, you know the, one of the first things a Christian ought to do, of course, get baptized. That ought not be a 10-year wait. You ought to just do it and, 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 repre- and, and uh, uh, reflect Christ in your life through that, through that methodology that he chose. So you can show the people. I tell people, when you get baptized, the church people look at you, and you know what it does? It breaks down walls between you. And it makes them trust you that, hey, this person is believing the same message that I believe. And that's not always so when you bring a baptism from a different church because they don't even know what that church is. And so that's why we're very careful that we always take baptism of churches of like faith. Yeah, it's not just because someone got dunked in the water, you know. And that's a danger with churches today. And you get a bunch of these people that have been from all different doctrines and it's, you get a hodgepodge of, of ideas in the church where, where that, at the beginning, that's the time to nail those things down. You know, and it takes time to do that. And that's why, you know, I, I'm not like these preachers that'll you say, oh, you need to join the church next week. And no way, man. Like, uh, why would I put you into that if you're not ready and you're not surrendered? I, like, my faith says, hey, once you get saved, get baptized, join the church. But that's not maybe where your faith is, you know, and you can't ride mine because I'm going I'm to be the one you're going to blame when you can't handle it, you know. And so I wait for God to do work, and I also love it when, when God's people walk with him. And they know that God is speaking to their heart and saying, you know, the Lord told me I need to be baptized. The Lord told me I need to take out that earring. Or the Lord told me I need to change Bibles and start reading the King James Bible. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be me just twisting your arm. It should be you and your walk with God should lead you in that, in that direction that we're going in this church. And those are the people that I want to make up the membership of this church. Amen. Because then I know if you're making those kind of decisions in, uh, based on your walk with God from the beginning then you're going to be behind us as we make decisions and going forward and buildings and this, that, or the other. You're going to be on board, not always that one that votes no because everybody else votes yes. <laughs> I had one person one time said that. He says, I just vote no because everybody votes yes. I say, oh my goodness. Okay, if yes is the right answer, then what is no? <laughs> and if yes represents God's answer, then what does no represent? <laughs> Be, be careful which, which one you pick, amen. But that's based on your walk with the Lord, amen. 
and things like that. Anyways, let's go to number five. They built booths that they would live in the that they would live in under the stars for seven days. They built uh, booths with goodly trees, branches of palm leaves, bows of thick trees, and willows of the brook. So I'm I'm getting this picture of these lean-tos that they're building just to cover, not necessarily to build a house around them, but just to give them a cover over top of them so that when they lay there, they would still look out and they'd see the starry sky because that's what the Lord is is focusing on here. He says, I want you to remember that this is not your home. (laughs) This is just a temporary place. And not only that, I don't want you to miss when my tabernacle comes from heaven and it sets itself down. And that's what this whole thing is, is focusing towards here. And so, um, number six, it was a time of rejoicing and celebration. So this wasn't an, uh, just a, uh, you know, everybody's filled with awe and somber and so forth. They were, they were rejoicing. And of course, when you're thinking about the coming of Christ, which just represents, uh, that's what you do. You rejoice. It shouldn't just be, I mean, if you're ashamed of Jesus coming, then you need to deal with your heart, you know, get back to the day of atonement, you know, confess those sins. But once the sins are dealt with, why in the world wouldn't I rejoice that Jesus Christ is coming again? Yeah. You know, I mean, if I'm sitting here saying, oh, Lord, don't come back yet. Well, he's saying, well, why not? Why wouldn't I come back yet? Well, I'm not ready. Well, then why aren't you ready? Well, because, no, it's just because you don't want to. <laughs> That's it. And yeah, you, you will be ashamed when you look at me like that. And so get these things right. Get these things right. It's kind of like I tell people in relation to the Lord's Supper, you know, uh, you know, some people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to partake because I'm not ready. Nowhere in the scripture does it tell you not to partake as a church member of this church. In fact, the only command, it says, this do ye. So there's never this thing where, well, I'm just not ready in my heart. Well, then just get ready. Because the command is you ought to do it. And if there's something keeping you from doing it, that's exactly why the Lord put it there to, to bring you to this realization that you need to be right with God to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is a picture of this because he even says, uh, I'm not going to drink of this vine with you until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. Amen. So it's all pointing towards this very same thing that we're talking about today, this, this second coming of Christ, seeing him again. And so I encourage you never to take on that attitude, well, I just can't take it now. Because, well, why not? There's only certain reasons why a person cannot take the Lord's Supper. And first, you've got to be involved in a local church. Amen. You've got to be placed in the body before you can commune with the body. Amen. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And then after that, you're supposed to be right in the body. Right with the Lord, but right with the people around you too. This is the body of Christ. So if you, I mean, you're cutting up somebody and you've got a problem, you've stolen from somebody, you're cursing at somebody, well, then you're not ready, but I'll tell you something, there's no way out where it says, this do ye not. It says, this do ye. That's why every time we have a Lord's Supper, I'll have an invitation at the end, because that is enough time for you to deal with whatever it is that you need to deal with. And I've seen some of the greatest invitations happen right before the Lord's Supper. You know, because some people take that seriously. They actually get up and go to a person and say, I'm sorry for what I said. Because they're getting ready for the communion with Christ and his body. Amen. And that's what it's all about. It's not just some general supper that anybody and their uncle can come and join in on. It's it's an intimate, local church issue. 
And it, it brings us to purity. It brings us to communion with each other and communion with the Lord. Amen? And that's why it's vital for us. Anyways, I didn't plan on talking about that. But, um, but then when you get all things right, guess what? You should be happy about it. That would be rejoicing in your heart. And not so, if you're still like that after you got out and said sorry, then something's still not right. I mean, after you say sorry, there ought to be a peace and a weight off your shoulders and ought to be rejoicing. And that's what the Lord's expecting here. He's saying, hey, we had the Day of Atonement. If you confessed all your sins five days ago and all those things are dealt with and placed on that goat and put into the wilderness, I mean, he's still out there bleeding somewhere. <laughs> Amen. Why in the world are you sitting here all sourpussed? You should be rejoicing. And that's the, that's the kind of people he wants to be prepared for him when he comes again. Amen. Uh, but there is, the Bible says in 1 John, that there are those that will be ashamed at his coming. And we ought to always keep that before us. The hope of his coming. And if we have that before us, the Bible says, if, if we have that hope in us, that we will purify ourselves even as he is pure. See, that's that whole process. If you keep him, that he's going to come any time, you will think every day I need to be right with God. You know, but if you're not concerned about being right with God, you've forgotten that Jesus can come. What would you do right now if he just came back? Right now. Would you feel good about that? Would you be rejoicing in that? Or was it like, oh boy, you know, Lord, sorry, I knew I wasn't ready. That ought never be the situation for God's people, especially with all of the ways that he gave us to stay right with him. <laughs> Amen. I mean, it's just, and it's not even work, man. It really isn't. It's not like you got to go do something, climb a mountain or, you know, whatever. It's just in your heart. But man, that's hard, isn't it? Just to get right in your heart and to get right with somebody else because that pride is, well, they did this to me. It's the hardest thing to apologize to somebody when what they did to you was worse than what you did to them. But it still doesn't make it right. You still have to apologize. You still have to make that right and confess it, even though what they did is worse. You don't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you wouldn't have. Well, don't even start then. <laughs> you know, you deal with your heart, not theirs. And I'll tell you something, when you deal with your heart, they will begin to look at their heart. I'll tell you, as long as you put out the, the target for them, they're going to keep shooting at it. But you go up to them with a humble heart and you say, hey, I just want to tell you, what I said to you the other day was wrong, it was sinful, and I just really would love for you to forgive me for that. Now, he knows that he, he cursed at you or he did this or he did that, but you're not mentioning that. See, if you would have mentioned it, then he would still be aiming at you. But because you shut your mouth and all you did is talk about yourself, you made it possible for his eyes to go introspective. See, now he doesn't have a target on you. Because it's all dealt with. <laughs> but you start putting those ifs and buts in your apologies, I'll tell you something, you'll never get, be right with that person. You get that? It's vital, <laughs> you know. And I know we just want to make sure, well, but you know that you did this to me. You know, as there you're justifying your sin again. Yeah. And now you've made a target, and all he's doing is looking at you and saying, oh, yeah, there you go. You think he's going to be introspective in that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Completely focused on you again. I mean, do him a favor, man. <laughs> Just do it right. Do what the right thing to do is and get those things settled before the Lord and before people. Number seven. It was a reminder of, to Israel how the Lord delivered them from the bondage, uh, bondage of Egypt. And it's interesting with Egypt, uh, with Israel, 
Uh, I was telling somebody that when we were in Israel, we went to the, the Shiloh site there where the, the uh, tabernacle was set up for 400 years before it actually got moved over on its way to Jerusalem. And they would go there and meet there three times a year in that, in that particular area. And uh, um, what was I going to say? It, it, you know, they, they had this model set up there of the tabernacle. Now, we, I sat there where the tabernacle site was, and right, right here, I think, man, that Shekinah glory was right here, man. It's just like, I need to pray right now, <laughs> you know? It was, it was wonderful. But, you know, they had a little, a little showroom set up there, and then, and then this Hebrew guy starts talking about the, the tabernacle. And I'm looking at him. This guy doesn't have a clue what it means. He is just so out to lunch. It was humanistic. It was all about humanism and, and so forth. And I was just like, what? We just finally told him to stop. And then we began to tell them <laughs> what this tabernacle means. Because the whole thing is Christ. And they don't like him, so that's why they don't talk about it, right? But you know, with Israel, it's interesting. Because here it says that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So here is a primary interpretation towards Israel for this tabernacle that they would remember. So to this day, when they go in their booths, oh, remember Egypt. They're always looking past at at what happened in Egypt and how they got out of Egypt. But the Lord, he knew that they couldn't handle the future without Christ. So he gives them this to focus on so they continue to do it. And then as they grow, he begins to bring information into it that this isn't just about you being brought out of there. This is about you being brought over there. You see, now we're focused. We're not focused on Egypt at all as God's people. The Feast of Tabernacles to us doesn't mean that at all. We're not going to go and, well, we wouldn't do this anyways, and you shouldn't go to the Feast of the Tabernacles until Jesus asks you to in the Millennial Kingdom. Amen? But... But I just find that's interesting because the mindset of the Jewish person today will be completely different than the Christian mindset of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And that doesn't mean we're wrong. It just means that they have not gotten past the, the hidden mysteries. They, they're stuck in the past, you know. And once they have Christ, all those things unlock for them about the future. And so number eight, it will be the only feast observed throughout the millennial reign of Christ. And you see that in Zechariah 14, 16, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of the tabernacles. And so who's going to be there? Jesus. In, in his form, in, in, bodily, right there, the King of Kings. And I would, you know, it's wonderful when you start looking at the millennial reign. You know that David will be there? There's a place that David sits by the eastern gate. There's certain things that he does for his people. And he represents his people. He's kind of like the, the, the ruler underneath Christ to the children of Israel. And then you have Jesus Christ as the king of kings, you know. And then you have the church because we, we've been purchased and we're in our glorified bodies through that thousand years. And not everybody is. We're in a very special uh, position there. And God's using us throughout the whole globe to rule and to reign. All the cities and all the nations and all the different aspects of the world. It's very real, you know. Like, I don't know if he's going to call every pastor back to the town he pastored. Say, now I'm going to make you mayor. <laughs> you know, I don't know what he's going to do. But sometimes he says, I'll give you ten cities. I'll give you five cities. He, he divvies that out according to our faithfulness. 
But if you're not faithful in the least, he says, you'll not be faithful in much. And that's what he says. If, you're not, if you in this dispensation are not going to show yourself faithful, you're going to have a very low position in that kingdom. And it'd be great. I mean, it's better than being in hell for sure. But you know what? It's still like, why didn't we? Something so simple about being faithful. He didn't say you had to have an IQ of 120 or 30 or, or, or 200. And I think it don't go past 200, does it? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be the most talented person in the world. You don't have to know a musical instrument. But he gave you a requirement that everybody can fulfill, and that is faithfulness. That's hard enough for people. That really is. There's three services a week. How many people come to all three all the time? What keeps you away from that one? <laughs> you know? And that's your business. I mean, you're going to meet God with it. I mean, you're going to have to explain it to Him, and it's going to cost you. But faithfulness, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So if there's one thing, one major thing Christ is looking for, He is looking at your faithfulness. And you know what? You can go do everything you want to do to make yourself look good as a Christian. He's going to come right back to that base element. Were you faithful? Oh, yeah, but I I did this instead. He says, no, were you faithful to what I said? It's not about your plan. It's about being faithful to the things of God. Amen? Were you faithful to the scriptures? Were you faithful to your church family? You know? And a lot of people aren't. And it has to do with church family. You know that, right? It's not just about going to church and listening to preaching. It, it has to do with the people there because it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of so, some is, but, uh, but it says, considering one another and to provoke and to love and good works. So really, when you're not faithful to the house of God, you're not faithful to the people of God. And you're not faithful to the word of God. Yeah. Now, it's easy to just kind of, in your head, just, but... It's going to come back one day when Jesus comes. He's going to bring it all back to the base thing and say, okay, now let's really think, oh, I don't really want to talk about that, Jesus. Well, that's not an option here. You can't just walk away from this conversation like you do with people in the church. <laughs> you know, he says, this is, this is accounting time. It's all going to be level at the end of this meeting. <laughs> Amen. And so that's why we got to level it out as much as we can before that time comes. And I keep saying it over and over. Guys, don't you forfeit your faithfulness to God. Your faithfulness will have a huge impact in that millennial kingdom of God. Huge. It's, it's going to reflect. That's why the Bible says, you know, they that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars in heaven. Like there, there's an equal response from God to our faithfulness in doing the work of God here. And let's never forget that. And I'm not saying it just because I'm a preacher trying to make you feel bad. I really do want you to shine, <laughs> you know, in heaven. I want you to have that good testimony one day with the Lord. That the whole world can see that there was faithful people that trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you think that would help even the people in the millennium to look at you and say, you know what, they did it when they didn't even see him. Let's be faithful when we do see him. Yeah. Amen. Boy, we have an opportunity today, people, to be faithful to someone you do not see, but you know he's real. But I'll tell you something, that's why it slips, because you forget, because your eyes get focused on the world and you get distracted on different things, things that have no real consequence other than stealing away your rewards, you know, 
and what Christ's going to do with you. So just think about that. But this, Zechariah, it says, um, and it shall be for whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth. So it's not just Israel at this point. Every person on the earth is going to have to obey, observe this, this feast. It's all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem uh, to worship the king, the Lord of uh, hosts, even unto them shall be no rain. So even the millennial kingdom, he's going to withhold rain on those nations that will not come. So you got your farm going there. Uh, I'm too busy. I got to work, you know. <laughs> Can't go to church all the time here. The Lord gave me a brain. I got to use it. The Lord says, okay. Then I also gave you rain, but not no more. <laughs> you may have a brain, but no rain. <laughs> and that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to withhold rain on those people. Now, rain is important. Even this world knows that right now. We got a, a water advisory in Airdrie, a level two water advisory. Not, poor Levi is washing windows with his little bucket. He can't even go wash windows. They say no professional window washers allowed to wash windows right now. Because there's a water shortage. They know the importance of rain. Man, you imagine all the things the world has, they got no control over the rain. Yeah. They love to control it, but they can't. They would mess it right up if they could, you know. But the Lord does. So why isn't it raining? Why are these fires going? Well, you can have some conspiracy theories all you wanted to. I don't know. But you know, all I know is whatever man does, there still is God. And if God's not acting on our behalf, there's a reason for it. Let's be faithful. It says, um, it says unto the family of Egypt, go not up and come not, that have no rain. There shall be a plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of the tabernacle. So if, if you're not going to listen to my little punishment on rain, then I'm going to up the ante a bit and we'll put a plague on you. Wow. That, you know, the Bible says he's going to come and rule with a rod of iron. You know, there's not going to be no mamby-pamby, long-haired Jesus up there, you know, with flowers all around and everybody dancing and, you know, that's not it. He's coming as a king of kings. A lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to rule with a rod of iron, you know. It's going to be good, though, because, you know what, you're not going to even think about not going to the tabernacles. You're going to go. Any good Christian, like, it's like going to church. It's like, like, what do you mean I'm not going to church? See, the only ones that, that really it bothers is those that don't want to go, <laughs> you know. And hopefully you will be those that, yeah, I do want to go. Well, you're going to be ruling and reigning, amen. But those underneath you, you're going to be telling them, hey, we got to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles. No, we're not going. You think they might be a little foolish like that? I think so. Still a sin nature in the thousand-year reign, you know, until the end. No rebellion, but sin nature. Foolishness, you know. It'll be good for a thousand years of no rebellion. Wow. I wouldn't know what to expect every, around every corner. I'm saying, okay, when's rebellion going to start? It's not going to start. They just do foolishly stupid things, you know, and then they get swatted for it, and they're, oh, okay, <laughs> keep on going, you know. Tells you the devil's behind every rebellion. So it says, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So the one feast left. Why? Because it's not finished yet, is it? Because there's still a sin nature. Not everything's been brought, been under, uh, you know, has not been subdued. But you look at the millennial reign, a lot of things have. Even the thousand year reign, 
uh, the natures of animal animals will be subdued. See, in the in our you know time right now, I mean, you saw see the videos. The buffaloes are you know bucking everybody, and the bears are attacking, and the snakes and everything else. But you know, in the millennial reign, it's not going to be so. The Bible says the child will play upon the den of the ass, and the wolf will lie down with the lion with the with the lamb. You know, and so the Lord is what He's doing in His in His whole uh, His His whole plan here is sub taking back that which sin took away. And so that's what the whole millennial reign is about. He's taking things back until the end. The last thing is what? What's the last enemy to be destroyed? Death. You know, and then when he has that. Then he's going to destroy this earth that was cursed, and then a new one will come. He says, now we can start fresh. You know, but he's got to subdue it. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that subduing process there. Anyways, number nine. The eighth day was a high Sabbath day that pictures our new start in eternity. So Leviticus 23, 39 says, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast unto the Lord uh, seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath. And on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Usually it's the first and the seventh. But here they're having the first and the eighth. Now what's the eighth? That doesn't make sense because you have the first day of the week and then you have the last day of the week. But now you've got the eighth day. Well, where does that fit? <laughs> well, that's a complete new beginning. That's what the eight is. So that's the picture of everything becoming new. Everything, the perfect age. Amen. Letter A, it was called the great day, that eighth day. In John 7, verse 35, remember we talked about Jesus, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water when they took the water from the pool of Siloam and, they, uh, and so forth. But it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So in the last day, that great day of the feast. So that was the last day, and it was the great day. And so that's picturing the new eternity coming letter b water would be taken from the pool of siloam to the temple to be poured out before the brazen altar revealing the need for spiritual regeneration through christ's death and resurrection and so that was important holy spirit comes through the sacrifice amen and that's where he says in 38 he that believeth on me as the scripture hath said out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water but this he spake of the spirit which they that believe on him shall receive for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, reminds me of John 4 with the Samaritan woman. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knowest, knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. So it's always, even until the final chapter in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And so that's picturing that redemption. Number 10, the fulfillment of the feast will be when the heavenly tabernacle of God is with men. So here they're underneath the stars, or under their little temporary booths. They start looking up, and all of a sudden, guess what's happening here? At the end of the millennial reign, uh, the tabernacle of God is coming down to be with man. This is going to be quite interesting. <laughs> Amen. And uh, I don't know how the whole thing is going to transpire as far as when the, uh, 
Um, the earth is going to be changed, a new earth, a new heaven, and so forth. But all I know is that when God comes down with that tabernacle, what he is doing at the same time is he is dissipating the universe. And he's bringing that third heaven down to the first heaven. He's combining the first heaven with the third. See, now there's a big expanse. In that expanse, what exists there? Well, aliens. <laughs> All kinds of things of the imagination exist there. Well, that's where the prince of the power of the air, that's where he messes around. You know, they're up in space. They're, they're always looking around for things to mess up. You know, that's where the battles, the heavenly battles take place in the heavens. But you know, when this takes place, that second heaven's going to be gone. And the third is going to meet with the first. And then you're going to have heaven on earth, literally. And so it's important to understand that because I think sometimes we become so simplistic in our thinking, oh, we're going to go to heaven when we die. And that's like we think we're just going to be up there in, with uh, you know, harps and, you know, on the clouds. But think about the very practical things that are going to take place here. <laughs> you know, it's really not at all how it's going to be in the long term. I mean, sure, we'll go up there for a while and wait until this dispensation is over, then come back with him uh, while he rides down on his white horse. But ever since after that time, you think of the exciting things that are going to take place. I mean, up there too. But you think of the, the, the amazing things that will take place on this earth, even after you die. You're coming back. Airdrie, Calgary, it might just be lumps of you know, bricks, but I don't know what it'll be at that point. But all I know is this earth is going to be pretty much what it is right now for a thousand years. And you're going to be ruling and reigning on this earth with your glorified body, with Christ on the throne. Interesting, amen? But we'll always remember, this place is not my home. I'm just dwelling in a booth around here, you know? And we're keeping our eyes up to heaven because that, that, that heavenly, that, that God's home is going to come down and meet with us at the end of that thousand-year reign. It says in Revelation 21, 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know that ultimately right there, that verse is really giving you the whole purpose of the Bible and the whole purpose of what God wanted from the beginning. He just wanted to spend time with man in the garden. And this whole journey has been about how man messed it up, <laughs> brought sin in between, and how God had to come back and come up with a way to bring all of mankind and subdue it back underneath himself so that he could just simply come back down and be with them and be with them for eternity. That's the simplistic plan of the Bible right there. You know, we, we confuse it sometimes, but that's what it's about. God wants to be with you. <laughs> that's what it's all about. That's why it's important. Even now, you take advantage of that relationship you have with your regenerated spirit and your communication that you can have with God. Don't let the world get in there and, and steal your focus away and you, know, you have a better relationship with the world than you do with God. Because the center part of your being is connected to the life of God itself. And if we stay right and keep sin out of our hearts, 
we can have a walk with God and we can know he's with us. I was, we were doing a devotion with our kids the other day and he was talking about just being God conscious. Just being God conscious. To wake up in the morning, just realize God is here with me today. As we go to work, he's in my vehicle. He's with me. He's, he's on the job with me. Can you imagine if you could live that kind of life? You would have no problem not sinning. <laughs> but it's when we forget God. <laughs> That's when it's, oh, I'm going to hide here. Oh, no, he, he's still around. He sees what you're doing. But you're not God conscious. And when you're not God conscious, that's when you sin. That's when you do the wrong things. That's when you're not faithful. That's when you're not following the Lord the way you ought to. Amen.